Well, hello and welcome to episode 185 of The Cool Room. And what an exciting episode we have coming up. What a lot of editing I have to do for anyone who joined us live in the Zoom room on Sunday afternoon with a third of our black box tastings. You'll know what I'm talking about. It was great to see so, so many people along. Uh, A ripper afternoon. Thank you to everyone who joined us. We have one more black box tasting to go, uh, and that's going to be on Thursday night. So make sure you come along and be part of that. If you're listening in, if you listen to the podcasts uh, for the last two black box episodes, well, why not join us in the flesh? There are some great beers in those last three. Uh, Slots in the black box, so many fun things to talk about. Look, this was a ripper episode We were super lucky to be joined not just by my very good friend, Mr Warren Wu, who as ever brought his excellent taste buds and knowledge of the industry to the room, but also by the man whose name is on the front of the store. Yes, Ben Carwin himself joined us for a tasting, uh, brought some of his ideas and insights, gave us the reminder that if you're enjoying these beers, they're available on tap at Carwin Cellars for a really limited time. So get along and enjoy them there. And a reminder as well, if you're enjoying them, if you want to see how they age, if you need another pack, uh, or if somehow you've missed out, we've got just a few left now in our online store. Google Cool Room Shopify uh, and you'll be able to find our online store. Grab the black box and the great beers in there. Look, so many other fun things in that store as well. Uh, Very soon, in fact, uh, on Sunday the 16th, we're going to be joined by Third Moon Brewing all the way from Canada. We've got a tasting pack for that in store. Brainy Brothers, who have a great story to tell, as I've mentioned previously, they're joining us later in July as well. You can grab both of those tasting packs and support the podcast uh, in so doing. And um, then we're going to have a live event with co-conspirators. And then in August... Really looking forward to having some great online guests then, both Bowden Brewing and Behemoth uh, from New Zealand. Uh, Those packs are going to be available really soon uh, and a great way to support the work that we do here in the podcast. Been fantastic to have so many new listeners coming on uh, through the black box. Thank you to everyone who has joined us. Um, Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep up with the news. And if you're not already on our mailing list, well, there's a really good reason to do so because we're about to get our uh, annual Canteon uh, delivery. And, well, basically, the order of uh, the delivery to people, the offers for people to buy those beers, go to, first of all, our subscribers. A big thank you to everyone who subscribes with a monthly pack, which means that you get 12 beers delivered to you without really having to think about it. It just comes out of your bank account every month, and you know you've got the beers we'll be talking about online and on the podcast. Uh, A really great way to support us. So subscribers first to say thank you to them. Then everyone who's on our mail list will get the next option to buy the Canteon. If you're not already on that mailing list, just drop us a line at coolroompodcast at gmail.com and then you'll get that offer. And then if we've got any left, we'll put them up on our socials. So uh, great beers from Canteon, as I think many of you listening in would know. Uh, And so a real opportunity to get your hands on a pretty rare beer here in Australia. Okay, so Mr. Warren Wu, uh, Ben Carwin and I were joined by a team of some of our very favourite brewers. All of these guys have been on the show before. Hunt out the archives if you want to learn more about the breweries. Uh, Just some really fun, fun people with some great stories to tell. 
So we, uh, we kicked off uh, with Jimmy from Goodland talking about his beers. Uh, then we were joined by Brendan O'Sullivan uh, and Bill Armstrong from Three Ravens and then from Bright Brewery, our old friend Evan Cranny. Uh, look, great yarns, great to hear the interactions between all of these guys. Really looking forward to listening back as I do to the editing, not so much listening, <laughs> looking forward to how much I'm going to have to cut out along the way. But stick with us and uh, really hope you enjoy this episode uh, of the Black Box Tastings, episode 185 of The Cool Room. Ben Carwin. Ben, how are you this afternoon? I'm good. Had no kids sports this weekend, which is always nice. Oh, didn't you? I had junior footy this morning, as in my son did, but, you know. Yeah. Now, Annabelle and Nicole are out playing, but I didn't have to go because I have an excuse. I've got this on. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, we're looking forward to your insights on these beers. We're looking forward to Mr Warren Wu's insights on the beers. Warren Wu, sitting next to me, how are you? Uh, Good, thank you, David. Yeah, great day in Melbourne. Great day to be trying these three wonderful beers from these three wonderful breweries. It's, yeah, really, really excited. Um, All of the beers so far have been been pretty magic. All of them have been pretty interesting. Uh, good range, really fascinating, um, fascinating takes on dark beers. So, so um, yeah, looking forward to this. Absolutely. Go back and check out the previous two episodes if somehow or another you've ended up listening to this one before the, uh, the previous two Black Box episodes that we've done. But, look, we've got a cast of thousands here in the room with us today, and we really look forward to having some interaction between uh, Ben and the, uh, the breweries themselves, rather than just Warren and I talking along the way. Uh, so, look, Warren, do you want to start with some introductions, and we'll get each of the brewers and teams just to say a little bit about their brewery and, and which of the beers they've tried from each other's breweries over the years. Excellent. What a fantastic idea. So we might kick off with uh, Jimmy from Goodlands, and I have Jimmy's beer in my glass at the moment, and it smells incredible. Um, so, Jimmy, would you like to introduce the beer you've uh, put into the Carwin, um, the Carwin pack and um, give us a little introduction about Goodland. Um, we had Goodland. When, when, we, when did we have Goodland on? I reckon it's about a year or so ago. Yeah, it was a little while ago. You've been on? Yeah, late uh, last, I think it was October or September or something last year, I think. Yep, yep. Thanks for having us back again. We love having (laughs) guests return. This has been a good chance to catch up with a whole bunch of our, um, a whole bunch of people who contributed to the podcast before. So we've been really enjoying that. Um, Jimmy, quickly, quickly. We'll we'll get to talking about about your beer in a moment, but would you like to give us a quick introduction and what you put in? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, Goodland Brewing, we've been open uh, coming up to two years now. Uh, we've got our second birthday, the 29th of July. We've got a bit of a festival at the brewery. Um, so, that's coming up. We're located down in uh, God's country, down in sunny old Gippsland, uh, Terrelgan. We um, just got a small sort of shed up in the industrial estate, tap room. We're just open Fridays, Saturdays. Uh, we produce a range of uh, small core range of beers and then lots of limiteds. We try and release one to five limiteds a month. Um, everything from yeah, fruit sours to big barrel-aged stouts like this one. Yeah. So your beer is your beer is the Smalls Campfire Stout, and it's a big old barrel aged Imperial number. Um, 
it it smells incredible. Uh, what what made you decide that this was going to be your number? And as I said, look, let's keep it short because we'll have the bigger conversation later. But yeah, what what made yeah, you no decide? Worries. This um, it was one that um, we didn't know was going to work, <laughs> or if it was going to work, <laughs> um, uh, especially uh, using peat. Um, sometimes it can be quite overpowering, um, and yeah, like it's it's you sort of have to like peat to enjoy it, I suppose as well. There's a lot of people that um, you know something smoky is already over the top, and then you go peated. It's a hell of a lot more. So it's sort of a lighter peat um, grain bill that we used, but um, yeah, something that we were pl- toying around with, and then the idea of s'mores sort of come about for from. Um, a uh, couple of trips over to the states of recent, and um, yeah, campfire. What what can <laughs> what's better, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I was going to ask, I, I thought, given that we're all here with Ben, what's your first memory of meeting Ben Carwin? Ben, no right of reply. Uh, this is actually the first time I've met Ben Carwin. <laughs> Right <laughs> on the podcast, right here. Um, normally deal with uh, Ben Duval, so yeah, never we've uh, never got to cross paths. Only because we've always been um, when there has been something on, there's been something that one of us has been doing that we haven't been able to meet. So very nice to meet you, Ben. You too. <laughs> Well, there you go. That wasn't the answer I was expecting pretty clearly. But the, the other question, I guess, is uh, are you familiar with and do you have the beers uh, from both Bright and Free Ravens? I presume you know the guys from those breweries. Yes. Got them sitting here ready to go as well. Absolutely fantastic. Do you have any favourites from those breweries from times past? Um. Yeah, we've um, oh, three Ravens. I actually haven't been there for quite a while, but it was one of those ones that um, uh, the old, uh, what was the tram? What was the uh, the pub crawl on the tram there? You go up to Carwin, Tallboy, three Ravens, and sort of make your way back down that way. So, yeah, no, it was um, used to call in there quite a bit. It's good. And Bright, yeah, been up Bright a couple of times, but haven't met the guys there, though. Don't mind me in the English centre. I'll let Warren talk for a while here. That's Warren. We can um, yeah, we should, yeah, we, should keep, we should keep on moving. Um, thanks a lot, Jimmy. Uh, so, yeah, Three Ravens. Um, Brendan from Three Ravens, how are you doing? Yeah, good, Matt. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Um, all right, let's start. Give us a little introduction. Give us a little introduction, Brendan. Um how have you found your way to, to Three Ravens? Um, a little bit of history about you and the brewery. The brewery itself started in 2003. Uh, it started off as the hobby uh, side project of engineering company. Um, I might try and do a brief whip around the tour. Now's probably not the time for it, but my God, my fucking year. So we'll have a look around a bit later, perhaps. Um, I joined the company in 2014 uh, as a brewer. Um, historically, the brewery is known for traditional European-style ales, cask-conditioned, bottle-conditioned beers, but we rapidly went through a lot of changes. We're now, well, I want to say specialise in the, the modern uh, and Australian type of beers, exploring what that means um, in terms of raw materials and styles, but we do brew a really, really broad range of things, um, including a lot of wild, barrel-aged, funky, oxidised, weird and wonderful um, so really, really broad range of styles and beers that we brew. 
Um, I started as brewer, worked up to head brewer, really enjoy doing the recipe design. Uh, we've got a pretty awesome team here as well. Bill uh, Armstrong is joining me as uh, as tribute, our designated drinker. Uh, so we can comment on um, on the other beers today. Uh, he's our production manager, so he he does all the work really. Um, it may look good. Um, Murray, our brewer, has been with us for a little over seven years. Uh, and uh, Josh is our assistant brewer. Um, most of us have been here for a very long time, which I think I'm very proud of um, as, a, as a brewer and a, as a business owner and manager. Um, it's pretty rare to have a couple of guys come up to long service leave at the same time uh, in, in a, a craft brewer anyway. So I think I'm pretty proud of the culture that we've built here. Yep. Totally agree. That's awesome. Uh, Brendan, what's your favourite beer? Like, do you have a favourite? I'm going to throw in that question. We normally ask it later, but... Gettin' Gers has always been um, sort of a top five for me, but probably the top beer um, since I was a teenager, really. I was I was onto the Lambics very early, and it's just um, stunning. So good, good for any occasion, uh, extremely complex and... Um, from our range, uh, I think the Pilsner is probably what I go to uh, more than anything, um, the Thornbury Pilsner. Um, I'm also really proud of our uh, Solera Stock Ale from a personal perspective. Great. Thank you very much for that. And then thirdly, we've got Evan, the intergalactic sales manager for Bright. Hey, <laughs> Evan. How are you doing? How you going, guys? Excellent, Will. We always like to give you a promotion. We feel like you've been on this show now. <laughs> Is this the fifth or sixth yeah. time you've been on the show? We, we try to bump yeah. up every time. I, I feel like I'm like a Daily Mail article. I just kept getting, every few months, you just bring it back into the cycle. You're not very um, original anymore. Well, if that gives you pleasure to think of yourself like that, we're very happy to regard <laughs> you as such. Um, people can go back and listen to a whole bunch of you, a whole bunch <laughs> of times of you talking, uh, Evan, about your beer, about bright and the beer that you you flog around the place um <laughs> tell it but uh yeah give us a very brief a brief introduction about bright brewery for um, our friends in bulgaria oh yeah for our friends in bulgaria <laughs> uh easy so um as you mentioned everyone's probably heard this story numerous times now i think it's an annual event when i come mm-hmm. on um but uh bright brewery started in 2005 um up in uh, Bright, the town itself, which is roughly four hours northeast of Melbourne City. Um, so we are a regional brewery, uh, 100% family owned. Um, so currently owned by the Brand family, um, who were one of the um, original owners as well. Uh, we've been operating as a brew pub since 05, 06. Um, and then around about 2018, 2019, uh, we did a big upgrade, and built a new production facility in Bright itself again. Um, to take our beers to the wholesale market. That's sort of when I come in um, and get to come on things and, like this and, and talk uh, all things bright. But um, yeah, we're one of uh, one of the longest running um, more established breweries in the country. Um, style-wise, um, you know, not too dissimilar in, I guess, trajectory, um, although, you know, probably a deviation in styles uh, to Three Ravens. As Brendan mentioned, we started a bit more traditional, um, a bit more sort of your classic styles. Um, over the last few years, modernised, uh, sort of moved into more what you call that sort of craft sphere, um, play around a lot more now with sort of IPAs, sours, uh, dark beers. Um, yeah, so we've, we've sort of had our transition period from uh, a regional brewery that was just making some interesting English style beers uh, to things that, you know, now people actually want to drink. So. <laughs> 
Look, we'll get underway in a second with Jimmy and the, the first of the beers, but just to a reminder and a thank you to everyone who's joined us live on Zoom today, make sure you have the chat open and you can type in questions which we'll uh, ask the guys as we go along. Uh, hopefully there'll be a bit of time for formal Q&As at, uh, at the end where audience can unmute and ask their questions. And work experience, kid, normally I would ask your question about what's in the barrels, but I reckon we're going to have a heap of barrel chat as we go along today. So uh, rest assured that we will find out from all the guys who are pictured with barrels behind them today what is in the barrels, because by golly, it's, it's barrel afternoon here in the cool room. Um, yeah, it absolutely is, yeah, which is, which is great. And three completely different things, like utterly different things. So um, going back there, let's get back to, to Jimmy and let's dive into this s'mores beer. There's a whole, a whole lot going mm. on. There is, there is a ton of it going on. Not only the beer itself, but the production and how it's been put together. Um, can you run us through a little bit of a, a tasting of uh, the beer and and yeah give us your thoughts um yeah give us your thoughts yeah sure so um we brewed this beer going back uh june uh 2022 um heat um heat smoked imperial stout which we released as a non uh, barrel aged version as well uh just in keg only so we had on keg at um car and a few beer festivals and here at the tap room was called chivalrous Kent. Um, and the rest of it actually went into bourbon barrels, um, mainly uh, Buffalo Trace. They're actually uh, second use. So the first, um, the, the actual barrels themselves, we were going to get rid of them after we used them the first time. After we emptied them, um, we still, well, for one, it was a peated um, whiskey, sorry, a peated Imperial Stout, um, it just needed to go into something just to give it the time to round round out, um, but still pick up a little bit on the bourbon flavours too. So it's actually uh, second use for us, uh, bourbon barrels, um, which was the last time they're used. Um, they're gone now. So, uh, yeah, it spent 10 months in there. Um, definitely changed quite a lot while it was in the barrels. Um, it... Uh, it was, it was one of those things that we were sort of umming and ahhing what we were going to do with the beer, whether we were going to release it as um, just that, a, a bourbon barrel-aged heated imperial stout, or what, whether we were going to play around with it like, like we have. And, um, yeah, after coming up again that we were going to have potentially a beer in the black box, we yeah, strung together this idea of the s'mores. Um, yeah, so... We, and it did have the sweetness behind it, but um, it was also quite dry as well at the time. So uh, after we emptied out the barrels or we tasted from the barrels, when we started toying around with what we were going to do, we found that the um, the, the peat malt um, and the barrel had really sort of dried the beer out to where, it, and you do get it right at the end of the beer, I find, where it's mm -hmm. sort of, you get that, um, like you'd just have licked a bit of charcoal that's just freshly come off the fire, you know, you get that that little bit. But um, so, yeah, we looked at how we were going to overcome that and that was with a little bit of lactose, um, a little bit of milk sugar in there just to give it that nice, um, that that dessert-like sort of creaminess that, that it comes across with. Um, and then interestingly, 
quickly. We uh, yeah, we went over the states the start of the year, and um, graham crackers is not something that you can buy in Australia. Then you sort of don't come across them. Um, you can play around with like um, the digestives and stuff like that, but it's just not the same. So we end up um, uh, one of our bags half. We went to I think it was like Target or something in over in the states. Went over there and bought a heap of uh, graham crackers and filled the suitcase up to bring them <laughs> all home to uh, to go into the beer. So um, yeah, that's how that came out. So that worked. That worked out all right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's had um, we marshmallow wise. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we were working out what we were going to do with that. So we only used around. Oh, I think it was like. 30 or 40 kilos of marshmallows, which is quite a lot because, like, you know, in a bag, they don't weigh much. So, um, but we actually put these into the barrels. So the marshmallows went into the barrels um, probably about two months before we emptied the barrels because um, they'd already been in there for, the beer had been in there for about eight months at that stage. We already had a little bit of evaporation out of the barrels. So there was a little bit of headspace in there. Um, yeah, so we crammed as much as we could into each barrel um, and, yeah, went into the tank. We added uh, vanilla beans, whole vanilla beans and a heap of organic cacao nibs that we toasted here in our pizza oven, <laughs> um, yeah, to sort of get that more sweeter, um, chocolatier note off, off the nibs and, yeah, put it into cans and that's what we've got now. <laughs> So it was it was a crazy ride, but um, it worked. I think, <laughs> I hope. I just have this image of that of someone else one day getting those barrels and looking inside them, and seeing <laughs> what was left behind by that process, and it would looked like something out of Ghostbusters in there. I reckon. Pretty much did. Pretty much did. No, it was, they were a bit of a mess. That's yeah. They definitely weren't of use um, for anything again after that. So yeah. One of the questions we've asked, which we've sort of stumbled across in the last couple of podcasts is, um, would you do something different in the process now, knowing what you've done and tasting it? Is there sort of a little nuance that you might do a bit differently? Um, yeah, definitely. I've found like the, the beer itself, when it's cold, um, I've found that um, you do get a lot more of the, um, uh, a lot more of the s'mores type character coming through. Like, it's not a hell of a lot, um, but sort of like most of our beers, we try and keep them pretty well balanced. So, um, you know, we want the flavours and the, the aromas and things to be there, but um, you don't want it to be too full on in any um, in anything. You just want it to be a nice, well-made, balanced beer. So you sort of get little hints of all the flavours along the ride. Um, but as it warms up, you definitely get a lot more of the chocolate air. Um, the peat smoke really sort of comes out. And, um, yeah, it, it just it does definitely change the beer um, as it goes along. So it was – it's – I don't know what I'd do in terms of changing it. I, it like, um, it was sort of – it's come out to where we want it, that nice, sweet um, dessert-like beer, but with a hint of smoke and bourbon in the background – just to make this nice sort of rounded dessert, smoky treat, <laughs> I suppose. So yeah, that's that's sort of where what we're thinking anyway. But the um, we only used uh, like for peat malt, we used um, Simpson heavily peated malt uh, from the UK. It was about ten percent peated malt, 
Um, so not a lot, but still quite a bit. The brew house smelt amazing that day. We brewed that. Absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, so, and that's like, it's around a sort of 50 PPM um, peat malt that you, that you get from that. So it's, um, yeah, and I have done bigger beers with a lot more peat in them before, um, like around the sort of 30, 35%. And that's getting like, yeah, super, super, super peaty. But um, again, the barrel aging always helps with that, rounding that that side of things out. Um, is there a difference between what you taste the barrel as the final product and what you get in the can? Like how much does it change in that respect? Do you get much of a difference? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's um, it's it's rounded itself out um, a hell of a lot and we still do have a keg of the unpeated just to top barrels up because we've still got more barrels of the peated smoke which we're going to transfer from the bourbon um, into some other barrels and age for another 12 months as well. So it'll sort of be double-barreled, um, um, double the, the amount of time. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting to see how that rides out too. Um, but, yeah, we've still got a keg there that we use just to top up. Um, and if we needed to blend back um, with the beer, if it wasn't peaty enough, which we, we didn't need to do. Um, but, yeah, definitely has changed a lot. Um, and even... I think even like with the what we used in the beer to try and sweeten it up as well, um, again changed it completely from from what it was. Yeah, yeah. Was at how did you incorporate the grass? Sorry, if, sorry if I missed this bit. I'm pretty sure I didn't, but I was fighting off the English setter. Um, <laughs> With how did you incorporate the graham crackers, which you filled this suitcase and dragged? <laughs> they just they went into tank um, during so conditioning. So we, it's almost like a sort of dry hop that went. Um, yeah, that was um, like that was fun. Clean that. Yeah, <laughs> essentially it was dry biscuited. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and that just um, like we bubbled it through once that was in there and um, left it in there for a few days and dropped that out. And yeah, it was it was fine. But um, like talking to a lot of the the breweries over in the states as well, um, they would not use graham crackers. Or you'd look at doing it in the mash. But again, you, you use graham crackers in the mash, you're not going to end up with any of the flavour coming through in the end. You know, you might as well pick a nice biscuity malt or something like that to, mm-hmm. to use, um, which again might be something. Um, yeah, but they're a lot of the a lot of the bigger breweries that we get um, the big sort of adjunct type um, beers over here they're using a lot of flavorings and that sort of thing and it's not what we wanted to do with this one so yeah we thought we'd try it this way and and see how it went and yeah I'm interested to hear well both from the other breweries but Brendan we might kick off with you whether you've used any of these ingredients before what your experiences are and I guess how you think the team have done here in terms of balancing all those flavours that have come through. Yeah, thanks, David, and, and cheers for the story, Jimmy. I do really appreciate uh, what you're saying about using natural flavours. It's, I guess, uh, low-hanging fruit or an easy option to go for the extract, particularly when you're um, looking at things like nuts, but it's a lot more challenging to incorporate the real thing um, and to get the flavour you're after and also the utilisation of those flavours and get beer out of it at the end. We did do a, uh, as part of our conspiracy series with Carwin, we did a cookie conspiracy where we uh, we added 
marshmallows and cacao and wagon wheels and raspberries um, to a tank. Um, and we had a, had a lot of fun getting those marshmallows out <laughs> and jiggling and tasting them. Uh, but I can't say they contributed a lot. Um, yeah, getting those, those sort of flavours, getting them to dissolve. I'm not sure what your experience was like. Jimmy, did you... Did you see any loss of marshmallow when you racked the beer out or were they still? Like- yeah, no, nah, it was, it, it, the two months, um, it, there was like, they weren't, they didn't look like marshmallows anymore. It was more of just a sticky goo <laughs> that was left sort of sitting on top of, uh, of the barrel, but they, um, yeah, definitely had, um, sort of started or definitely had dissolved a little bit into yeah what it was. So, um, and I think, because we just emptied the whole barrel into the tank, you know, that sort of that come back into it and mixed around a bit and, and yeah, yeah, definitely helped. Because normally when we do use marshmallows, it's generally we'll, we'll throw them in the whirlpool and they're, they're gone, you know, within a couple of minutes. And, um, yeah, but doing them this side of things, um, yeah, if it was just a beer that was just crash cold and, and thrown them in, I don't think you'd ever, you'd ever get them... Um, to dissolve but being in the barrels at sort of room temperature definitely definitely helped so yeah i think in my like over our um over our time we've done heaps of different adjunct beers i think i'm banned from putting fish in beer now but my <laughs> process that i've landed on as being uh the most effective is sort of like a, a dry hop rocket like um the torpedo style recirculating the beer through the adjunct um yeah in a basket so you can uh, gauge the intensity, continue recirculating until you've got everything you want out of it and then stop. I feel like that's the best way to control extraction um, with uh, that sort of um, post-fermentation addition. Um, otherwise, I guess you've, you, you've got to be ready to rack the beer off um, the adjunct uh, unless you've really dialed in the quantity um, and you don't want it to go too far. It's not surprise a lot of listeners, um, but there's actually very little science out there available for contact time for dry marshmallowing imperial stouts. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> I'd love to do more peated beers as well, but um, someone in the team's got a, a moral allergy to peat. That'll be me again, Larry. <laughs> what, tell um, us more about this moral allergy, Brother Bill. Uh, I just think that as a society, we've moved past burning dirt. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> uh, no, it's just, I don't know, it's one of those things. Uh, I have a, a really uh, strong nose for uh, phenolics, um, and Pete has always been one of those things. I don't know whether it was because my mum drank Laphroaig uh, and nothing else, but it's just been one of those flavours that's always uh, been quite strong and overpowering for me. So I understand that. Uh, lots of people do love it. Um, I just don't fit into that category. Um, I didn't actually look at the can before I before I opened it. Or I didn't look at the back of the can. <laughs> uh, so I I just cracked it and I smelt it and straight away before I even got the glass anywhere near me, uh, I realised that um, it was peated malt and I was like, that's actually fine because it sort of it sort of fits the the brief here, you know. Um, so yeah, but then but then. Um, you know, moving past heat, uh, it was it was actually really quite pleasant to sort of see all these flavours and and how they um, blended together and melded together. And um, so, yeah, Jimmy, yeah, what what are some disasters which have occurred uh, in your time making dark beers? 
Probably I would suggest not to use uh, chocolate rye in the mash and a lot of it <laughs> um, tends for very, very stuck mashes. Um, but yeah, that's probably, I don't know, there's been a lot of things that have gone wrong, but yeah, generally try and <laughs> try and um, get it right. But yeah, that's probably, probably the worst. I think it was like a eight hour lauder, 10 hour lauder with uh -huh. um, yeah, chocolate rye. So yeah. Um, and quickly going back, and David's going to have to do some pretty fancy editing here. We forgot to ask Kevin: Was uh, as Brightbury uh, as Brightbury used marshmallow? I get the impression there has been a marshmallow beer from. Maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, my gut feeling says there has. I actually don't think we have. I was going through my uh, wheel of releases. We've pretty much thrown everything else in except marshmallow. We've done popcorn and things like that. I know that was a pain in the ass, but um, if our brewer is listening, congratulations, mate. You've got to make a marshmallow beer because we're, uh, <laughs> we're falling behind. Um, we, have done, we have done a lot of smoky stuff, though, but I am, I'm not going to leave Bill out on the plank by himself. I am also one uh, to hate on Pete. Um, oh, not I essentially, I have three rules uh, for production: no chili, no no smoke, no wheat. And we break those rules constantly, unfortunately. Um, so they're not taken seriously. But I am I'm also very susceptible to Pete. So um, I have to give Jimmy credit to this one. I actually drank it last night because I thought I'm going to record a podcast and have these three beers back to back. And I'm the last one. That's a bit of a stitch up. Um, but it was really well balanced. Like I, I got to yeah, a lot of credit, mate. I, I genuinely sort of move away from Pete um, at a pretty feverish pace, uh, but it was great. It really balanced it out. I think the sweetness and it just really melted together. So, Yeah, cheers. Yeah, it's one that, um, I know you, as a brewer, you're always sort of taught to steer away from Pete in beer. It's, um, you know, there's that many different... Rightfully so. ...smoked malts <laughs> and stuff like that, but no, I'm a sucker for Pete. So um, love my Peted whiskies and, um, yeah, no, it was one that um, wanted to tick off the list. So, yeah. Can I actually just also say that I did refill my glass after finishing it, so <laughs> you've actually done quite well. <laughs> you know, I enjoy it a lot of the year. <laughs> one of the things, I mean, it's a bit like one of our other traditional questions, our little spin on this one is, you know, normally we ask about your first beer memories. Do you have a first memory of a, of a big imperial stout or a barrel-aged stout? It's a style that is still relatively new in Australia at least. Um, yeah, I've got a few uh, that um, sort of take me back to, you know, the first time having something like that. And I the first Australian big stout I had, I reckon, was the Hargraves Hill, the RIS, Russian yep. Imperial Stout, like 2010, I think, 2011. They had the big bottles that used to come out. They were, yeah, absolutely beautiful. So that was probably like the first big stout um, I can remember having and just going, whoa, like, this is... This is amazing. Um, and then pushing on from that, sort of more the barrel age stuff. Um, when I was over brewing in Scotland, um, like Orkney had their Dark Island Reserve, um, which was Scotch barrel aged. And um, Brewdog used to have one of their earlier, um, like going back 2011, 12, they used to have a series um, called Paradox Isla. And it was, they'd do a brew um, from barrels from each of the, Isla um, distilleries and um, yeah so going back to the peat and stuff like that that was those beers were definitely like big big eye openers into 
you know, things that you can do, barrels and, and um, yeah, big stouts. Well, we've got everyone in the room. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, I was going to ask Ben Carwin the same question. The, you know, one of the minds behind this whole concept of bringing together all of these beers like this. Ben, do you have a particular sort of big barrel-aged stout that is at the beginning of your beery memories? Um, not really. Probably the, the Brewdog Paradox series was probably some of the early ones that were coming through. And then I think it's probably been the last, or well, since 2019, seeing some of the big US ones come in. You know, Side Project now here and Bubble Logic and a few others that you can really sort of get a sense of what can be done. So that's yeah. probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's good. Um, yeah, that's, the side are the same. Um, Jimmy, uh, finally, and I suspect sitting in front of a campfire would be one of the amazing places you'd you'd uh, would would be great to experience this beer. But where else can you imagine drinking uh, your beer? Do you have a do you have a spot in mind, a place where you'd you'd kick back and and smash down a, a small beer? Think it's it's got to be a campfire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably down at, yeah, down at probably down at Golden Beach, uh, long here, you know, ninety mile beach somewhere. Nice big fire going. Um, nice cold cold night, no wind. Beanie on in front of the fire. Few mates, perfect. It'd be pretty lucky for a night without wind in Gippsland. <laughs> but I totally, I totally love that that idea that sounds amazing um what we might do is we might take a couple minute break before we move to the james bean uh from from three ravens so we'll just take one or two minutes everyone stretch your legs um grab the next beer and we'll be back with you in just uh a couple minutes time So the next beer that we have is the James Bean from uh, Three from Three Ravens. So I think a great place to start would be um, uh, Brendan. Tell us about James Bean. Tell us, uh, yeah, tell us what's happening with this beer. Cool. So this is the fifth barley wine uh, that we've brewed. Uh, um, I promised I wouldn't tell the. Uh, the true history of the beer, but who goes? Um, it started out as a, a collaboration uh, with JC, Justin Corbett, um, a long time ago, before he had uh, a hop contract with HPA. Uh, he wanted to do a, a Galaxy Dry Hop Barley Wine. Um, so we always said we'd do one together um, here at Three Ravens. It took us many, many years to actually brew this beer, uh, but we ended up brewing... Um, a batch of this each, and essentially it was a it was a bit of a departure from what we'd previously done barley wines at Three Ravens. We our goal was to champion not Australian, oh, sorry, not English or American barley wine, but to create a barley wine that was distinctly Australian. So leaning into uh, matterization and um, that fractional blending of, of sherry um, and oxidised wines to create some really unique flavours. Um, when I started at the brewery, we had a a, a Double IPA that was a couple of years old sitting in our cool room in a tank and it tasted delicious, um, like sherry and really marmalady. So we used that to start the first barley wine and have been barrel aging that every year or every year or two and then blending that into the next batch. Um, the stock are being probably the most extreme version of that, but we've done barley wines along the way with a, a small component. Um, 
with the the collaboration with JC, we wanted to do something a bit more sort of along that English route, sweeter, um, juicier, just really big and malty and caramelly, um, minimal hopping, um, aged in uh, fresh bourbon barrels, and and Justin's approach. Worse the worse the bourbon, the better the the barrel aged beer. Um, so we went with Jim Beam, the the king of uh, bad bourbon. Um, it's that's cruel to someone who grew up in North Bendigo, can I say? But I understand where you're coming from. My <laughs> share over the over the years, it's it's yeah. very easy drinking, distinct, and has has a, a great character when used for beer. Uh, the plan with this beer was to trade some barrels, um, age it for a while, and then blend back together into tank and dry hop it with Galaxy. Um, with JC moving on, we kind of lost uh, lost touch with Deeds, um, so we had this. This barley wine aging in barrels at the brewery, uh, and Jeff, our sales manager, had forgotten that he had told me that he could sell barley wine um, if we brewed another batch. Or I guess selective memory decided that he no longer wanted some barley wine. So this, I think, this is a great opportunity for us to celebrate this this beer that was delicious and aging really well in barrels with uh, an audience that we thought would would really appreciate it. Being the the Carwin crowd. Um, it's pretty simple. It's it's a base of um, schooner uh, Valoria malt from Voyager with a little bit of uh, Vienna and Munich um, for maltiness and some rolled barley for texture. Uh, we chose Amarillo as the bittering hop because it's got one of the highest levels of beta acid of, uh, of any of the modern hop varieties, which is really good for, for barrel aging and for structure and, and sort of uh, making a beer that will stand up to a long time in barrel without, without falling over. Uh, when we brewed the beer, we did blend in a little bit of uh, old barley wine. So we had a, a the, the fourth version of our barley wine. We did a really small batch. Uh, tasting notes. Uh, for us, it's sort of a, a mahogany colour in the glass, a slight haze, uh, banoffee pie, creme brulee, fruitcake, uh, what we got on the palate, uh, vanilla, golden syrup on the, on the palate. Uh, one of my favourite um, tasting notes was from Jez Fletcher. Um, on untapped, um, honey, soy, caramel, cake batter. I think that's a really good summary. That that slight soy that we go for in the the Solera stock ale, aging with a bit of yeast in barrel to to accentuate that savoury uh, savoury note and richness. Uh, Brendan is is kind of a, a fair like a fair crappy newbie like me. What is a barley wine. Can you give us a little bit of history around the the style that you're not trying to copy, like the English or, or American styles? But yeah, give us a little a little uh, picture into what a barley wine is. Uh, it's part of the the family of British strong ales, uh, like old ale, um, stock ale. Uh, essentially, it's a beer brewed to wine like strength, um, keeping ale. Uh, very generally, very sweet, rich. Uh, aged historically probably had some Brett character as well, um, like the stock ale, um, the beer that you would age for a long time to blend uh, with your fresh beer or your, your mild beer. Uh, I think traditionally in, in Britain they were kept as a, as blending stock, as something that had a fairly high bitterness so that they wouldn't go sour. Um, so it was a way of tempering uh, young beer that might have been slightly sour or dry or bitter, um, that family of sort of very, very strong beer. Um, was used, I think, more as a, as a blending component um, in pubs and, and bars in dispense. Um, Americans took to the term um, barley wine and removed the space between the words uh, for legal reasons, I think, in naming 
um, when Sierra Nevada and, and breweries like that started started uh, using the term barley wine, um, labeling in America said they couldn't use the term wine on the on the labels, so they they uh, condense it to one word. Um, American barley wines tend to have a bit more character, uh, a bit more sort of caramel, specialty malt, darker, more bitter, hoppier, um, and uh, uh, the modern evolution is to to put them in barrels and really exaggerate the sweetness and, and spirit character and ABV. It would it be possible to sell uh, a base barley wine into the market? Is it is it something that could be done, or or is it just? We tried to do it. We, yeah. we were releasing one in the Little Ravens uh, range back in the day, which has turned into our Nevermore series. Um, it worked to a degree. Um, as I mentioned, Pete was a, a big fan and a big supporter of those those barley wines. Um, they never really took off. I think there's a limited market for, for volume of barley wine. Um, and it might have been a time and place that that time in Australia, they weren't um, really that appealing. I think there's a select few or a small population that, that really enjoy them um, on occasion. Um, I love having them in the cellar for a cold night um, or after dinner or with cheese. Um, but they're probably not something that people drink a volume of or, or go out of their way to buy a lot of. So I'd say no at this point in Australia. Um, I'm not sure if many people are doing full range barley wines or regular barley wines, but uh, yeah, as, as I alluded to earlier, our general manager has banned me from, from brewing barley wine. Um, the exception being this beer when our, um, when our sales manager said, you know what, I probably could sell beer, uh, barley wine if it was in a can. Uh, a shout out he, to Jeff. Jeff can sell anything, can't he? That's what he's told me over the years. He's changed his mind, I think, in the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> The, the thing with barley wine is there's a small but really passionate group of supporters and it's just not enough to make a market. Mm. You know, even we struggle to sell more than, you know, you sell the first case, after that it's hard. So. Um, so one of the great things about the pack is that there's such a, such a terrific variety of, of beers in there um and of course because of um well, the the attractiveness of the style and the uh and kind of how the market is at the moment the uh the kind of barrel aid stouts uh imperial stouts kind of pastry things like like and a great example is the is the good land um which we which we just tried um have you had uh, have you had much success in that more that style? And what made you decide not to go down that route for this particular for this particular um, this particular Carwin box? Yeah, we definitely have had far more success with stouts. I think uh, we were known as being a, a good producer of dark beer with things like the black um, imperial stouts and um, quadruples and that sort of thing over the years. So I think people. Uh, when they see a, a Three Ravens dark beer, um, they probably see it as being uh, a worthwhile investment, as something that they're happy to pick up. Um, I've always loved Imperial Stouts. I think they, they, they were hard to find when I was um, getting into beer. Um, we're, we're pretty lucky nowadays with the range and the breadth and access to, to Imperial Stouts. Um, but I've always really enjoyed brewing them um, so that I can put some in my cellar. Um, and they've, yeah, they have, they have proven to be a lot easier for us to, to market and sell. Um, they probably are a bit more drinkable um, than barley wine. Uh, and 
Yeah, I'm not sure what, what, why there's increased interest in Imperial Stout versus Barley Wine, but we've we've had a lot of fun playing around with different variations on, um, you know, peated or oatmeal or um, different barrel treatments, different um, adjuncts, and I think that keeps it interesting enough. I don't know if you'd be able to do that with Barley Wine and have people um, come back again and again. Mm. Uh, Jimmy from Goodlands and uh, Evan from Bright. Um, have you guys produced a barley wine? I'm just trying to think. Um, I don't... Oh, no. And then I know... I, like, Muggs is yeah, nodding we... there. Muggs, <laughs> the greatest fan of Goodlands. <laughs> and, like, brand ambassador, pretty much. Um, yeah, barley wine. Tell us about... Yeah, we just... Re- we just released uh, about two months ago a um, a barley wine that we aged in X bricks rum barrels. Um, yeah, so it's it's really nice to try this as well. Um, you know, to get the um, the bourbon the bourbon side of, of the style. Um, and we did all voyage malts as well. Um, so yeah, but that's again on the selling side of it. Like um, we only did a small run of it. Um, and it's, we've still got, um, we sold through a bit of it, but it's one of those things. I think once you've sold to the people that like the barley wine, it's, that's it. You've sort of <laughs> yang onto it after that. So yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful style. Um, it can be sweet and toffee like and, and malty and all those things at the same time. And then the barrel elements, um, yeah, just add to it again. I think yeah. And this is, yeah, this is an awesome example of that as well. There's, there's a real gingerbread character with this one, which I'm really enjoying. It's like a, that, yeah, kind of that extra layer over the top um, is is really fascinating. We had a, um, a barley wine party at Three Ravens a few years ago, I think when we released our third of the Little Raven series. Um, we had barley wine ice cream, uh, barley wine, um, blended barley wines, hot barley wine, and... Uh, we stocked up on all the classics like the Fuller's Golden Pride and um, Sierra Nevada. Uh, I don't oh, think yeah. we sold a pint. <laughs> as, as Peter knows, I've got some of the delicious Sierra Nevada uh, barley wine uh, in stock in the Cool Room Shopify at the moment. Just a good excuse while we're waiting for Evan to be back online with us to plug the Shopify. Can you hear me now? <laughs> yes, perfect. Thanks, Evan. You got me. There we go. Sorry, guys. Yeah, no, we did. Um, we did one back in 2019, uh, which we aged for a little over a year. Um, in Starwood whiskey barrels. Um, but to uh, echo Brendan's sentiments of Jeff Hansen, um, please don't give me barley wine. I really don't want to have to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like barley wines personally, and I do think as a style, um, they're a lot of fun. And I, you know, Brendan posed a good question. I don't know what the uh, what the rationality is for consumers that get behind Imperial Stouts, but they get behind barley wines. Um, we don't really have an issue when it comes to Imperial Stouts, but I think uh, I foresee us we'll probably do a barley wine again in the future. It's just, it's one of those beers that when you're looking at your list for a year, it's not on the highest priority, unfortunately. But as a style, I think it's really great. And um, our last one was delicious. So, They're the kinds of things that tend to scent in the f- fermenters for a bit. Like, how, how long do they actually sort of take? to get through the process, not counting the barrel ageing that might go in there? Is it something just with the higher alcohol that takes a bit longer in the fermenter and therefore clogs up production a little bit? Probably only a matter of days, I'd say, in terms of fermentation to get a, a well-attenuated beer. Uh, it's not huge. I'd, I'd say hazy hazy IPAs or IPAs in general probably take 
take longer in tank to reach a, a stable gravity. So yeah, I don't think it's that. Um, the one that we will continue to do, I think, at Three Ravens is the Celera Stockale because we can do small enough volumes that we don't need to distribute it. We don't need to move the, the product. We can save it for dinners and special events and tastings where um, the people that do appreciate appreciate it will appreciate it. We can match it with food and um, we're just not trying to to build a, a volume beer out of it. We're just sticking to a small volume that we can we can control and we can sell through our own channels. Hey, um, Brendan, do you have an early barley wine memory is there one that sticks out in your mind that you you tried and is kind of like the benchmark in your in your head? earlier i don't know that i had I, I, you know the ones that i i could drink when i started were like the banks barley gold which you could barely call a barley wine um the fullers which you know don't really strike me as as barley wines um Sierra nevada which for me was it's, it's a it's a strange beer um the big foot it's um, I think a, a bit of a relic in terms of um, history and in, important historically, but not really relevant today. Um, I did try the ten-year, ten-year aged version at Carwin recently, and um, it did. It tasted like Bigfoot. Um, I think one of my first experiences was brewing it um, as a home brewer, um, as as is the way I probably explored a lot of styles that we couldn't get or hadn't seen. Um, and I, I, I love brewing barley wine at home. Um, I was lucky enough to pick up a, a trophy um, for best strong ale in the in the country um, for a, one of the first barley ones that I brewed. I, hadn't re- I, I had no benchmark taste-wise. I think, I don't know when Murray's um, anniversary ale came about, but that was probably the only thing that tended towards what, what the barley wines are that we see today. Um, but to, to have something with fresh hop in it, which even with imported beers then, they didn't really taste fresh, um, to have a have a, a barley wine that blended aged and fresh character I thought was was pretty fun and pretty exciting and something I've always enjoyed to this day. Um, I'm just going to evolve the question about whether or not, like what would you do um, if you were to brew this again? Would you do anything differently? Because I feel like your the barley wines are a project which which will continue evolving anyway. But is there an end goal? Like, do you have in mind the perfect barley wine that you'd like to recreate or create? I'd say for this one, probably a, a less attenuative yeast strain, like um, another another British yeast strain that, that has some fruit character and, and stone fruit, but without as aggressive an attenuation. I think a little bit more sweetness in this would, would round out the barrel, um, give it a bit more body and balance. It's, it's a little bit... Um, I feel a little bit aggressive on the on the tannin front um, in the finish. As it warms up, that definitely mellows out and softens. Mm-hmm. But um, I think a bit more sweetness would definitely um, aid. Um, yeah, I guess our our prerogative here is a bit different to like this isn't a, a beer that we plan to brew again or, or something that we see there being a big market for. So for us, it's about the Celera Stock Ale as opposed to this this specific um, version of wine that we brewed. Um, yeah, for, for us, it's more about, yeah, finding our own niche, our, our own style of barley wine and, and championing that, which for us with the Solera Stock Ale is all about um, oxidation, um, sherry and and those really um, tertiary flavours that oxidise higher alcohols and um, body and um, sherry-like notes. Is there a, a place that you'd really like to be drinking this other than in front of those gorgeous barrels that, you know, we can see behind you? Is there sort of a, a spot that you think is perfectly suited to this or, a, moment, or a meal for that matter? Watching uh, the ashes 
um, at two o'clock this morning, trying to stay trying to stay awake. I was going to say, um, given the given the bourbon involved in this, probably King Street and the CBD at about one one a.m. <laughs> is it is touring, a touring cars still a thing in Australia? Maybe on the hill at Bathurst. If, yeah, that's, that's a good spot. spot. Yeah. Not only how about this as sort of a, a middle ground. Not only are touring cars yeah. still things here in Australia. Shane Van Gisbergen, oh, yeah. who is a touring three time touring car champ, went over to NASCAR and is the first person in 60 years to win their debut NASCAR race. So how about we all go over to um, North Carolina or somewhere like that and, and watch the NASCAR with uh, a couple of slabs of this? I'm going to say Claremont Show. Is it Claremont Speedway? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. watching, watching lopsided cars spray mud on people um, in purple. The kings and the wings who do their things. Mm. We go to Avalon every year still, brother. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I think that's I a say, I say bring back the Three Ravens Barleymorn party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. As long as you come and buy a flight, at least we'll sell one, Jimmy. <laughs> please don't. We got the after effects of that Barleymorn party at Carlin. It was not fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and speaking room, of... Mate. <laughs> um, now, Ben's just reminded me... Uh, a, uh, a keg of each one of the black box beers will be available at Carwin Cellars. So if you'd like to try any of these beers and you're listening and you had, didn't buy the pack, shape on you, sure. um, you should, yeah, you should head down to Carwin Cellars and and uh, smash out, <laughs> you smash out a pint of barley wine. Um, cool. Yeah, like you, yeah, do go down and and visit the Benz. Uh, and Tito, and uh, yeah, check out these wonderful beers. Ben, have you sold out of any of them yet? Have any been sort of on and off that quickly? Uh, I don't think so, but I can honestly say I haven't been in since Thursday. Um, so I'm not. You know, I want Ben's life. You know, wouldn't it be nice just to run such a successful venue that you don't have to go in there all weekend? I used to dream of something like that. No, I had to go to Spaniards to pick up the pallet of Vine Stefana test clearance that was a week late and people were getting upset that we hadn't got. So my Friday got written off. But when I went in, I didn't even look at the tap list. Um, I know the, the first two have been really well received. Um, and then, well, yeah. I suspect the boat rock is probably gone. It's, a, it's an excellent way to go and enjoy the beers. Go and enjoy them on tap. Uh, compare them to the ones you're getting in the pack. Order another pack off us as well. Check out the Shopify. I reckon let's have a little five-minute break here and then let's come back with Mushroom Bear. Well, we're back for the third of our beers as part of episode 185. We hope you've been enjoying them. We hope you've been going out and supporting Carwin and drinking them on tap. Ben's just confirmed that the only ones left in existence in pack form are in the Cool Room Shopify, so go over and grab another pack from there. That way you can get to enjoy Mushroom Bear. Warren Wu, do you want to lead the way with our beer here? I don't know how, how to start with this. It, 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 was, it was jet black when it poured out, so yeah, it's good, good fun. Absolutely. Um, Evan, tell us about Mushroom Bear. <laughs> um, okay. Fine. Uh, so, Mushroom Bear is obviously our beer for Black Box. Um, so, when we were approached by the Carwin guys uh, to be a part of it, we sort of 
had a think about uh, what we do well um, and maybe sort of putting our own, you know, unique spin on it. Um, a big thing for us every year is our stubborn uh, Imperial Stout. Um, it's an annual release for us. Uh, and the timing of, uh, of this year's was sort of coinciding um, with uh, the packing off uh, required for Black Box. So we had the idea to take this year's vintage um, and also blend it back with a small batch of uh, a previous year's vintage and um, sort of mellow it out a little bit. This year's came in at 16%. Um, so for the sake of uh, excise relief and pricing for Carwin, we decided to bring that down a little bit. Um, uh, on top of that, uh, being in the Northeast uh, and the time of year it is, it is pine mushroom season, um, which means you basically can't go for a walk without being inundated with uh, with mushrooms. And we felt like it was a pretty appropriate sort of collaborative uh, tie-in together, so. I have visions of you being inundated with mushrooms the way I used to be inundated with leeches when I went yabbying, that you'd sort of wouldn't even <laughs> realise they were on your legs until you got back to the car. Is that is that how you collect pine mushrooms? Uh, so uh, essentially the, the way it is is they'll just pop up and they'll be everywhere. Um, so Bright's pretty famous for mountain bike trails um and it almost looks like in the hills there's just bike paths bike paths carved between mushrooms it's very big and then over probably the span of a couple of weeks they just all are gone because the foragers come out um and take them all um maybe they're on the hunt for you know ones they can cook with maybe they're on the hunt for other kind of mushrooms we're not too sure now, Evan, while we've got you there, we might get you to turn your camera off, much as we love your face, just to get a, a no, fine. feed a little bit better. And I want to know, we've spoken to you previously, we've learnt some some important, you know, language from you that is used in Brighton-related <laughs> places about, you know, people who go up to admire the autumn leaves are, I believe, referred to as leaf peepers, which is now one of my favourite places in the world. Uh, what disparaging name do you have from the foragers for this, from the city who come up and, and steal all your mushies? I actually don't know. That's a good question, and that feels uh, that's a good tie-in for a future mushroom release beer where we can uh, mock them simultaneously. We did release a beer called Leaf Peeper to mock the leaf peepers a couple of years ago, so um, I'll have to get back to you on that one. That could be for my next podcast in however many months' time. It's still just... <laughs> I just love the phrase leaf peppers, as you can hear. I just like saying it. Um, one of our cool rumours uh, who's on the podcast in the room with us today uh, has let us in on the fact that one of your neighbours has also produced a mushroom stout. Mm. Any comments yes. regarding that? Uh, I think the irony of that was... Um, so this, this beer was devised... Um, because I had come from a previous brewery and we had done something similar to this probably about six, seven years ago. Um, so when this was coming up, uh, I spoke to our current head brewer, Lewis, um, and he was like, oh, yep, okay, let me have a think about it. Um, he's actually from named um, Brewery Bridge Road, who have also just released a mushroom stout. Um, so he called them and said, hey, guys, what would you do here? And they said, good question. We're brewing one today. What would you do? Um, so simultaneously... <laughs> We actually brewed them um, at almost the exact same time, just due to the release timeframes of Black Box. They got theirs out first, um, but I can confirm they were completely separate styles um, of production. So um, I believe they sort of more dry shroomed theirs than we did. <laughs> dry shroomed. There's a yeah. there's a new a new phrase. I, I want to see a can with you know DDS 
you know, room. HIPA on it. Very <laughs> I, d- I don't even know where to we, go with we, it. We've amused <laughs> ourselves with our own joke so much that we've lost track of where we're supposed to be up to on, on this one. But uh, I guess one question I'm interested in, because the mushroom to me, particularly on opening, isn't mm. hugely overwhelming. Is it one of those flavours mm-hmm. that comes out more as it warms? Yeah. Or is this sort of the max mushroom that we're going to get? So the idea behind it was to sort of balance out that mushroom. Um, the way that we actually devised sort of this, this flavor profile was um, our kitchen team got involved. Um, and over the span of about a, a week or two, we're making um, different mushroom sort of tinctures. Um, so they were using mm-hmm. both locally foraged mushrooms, um, but then sort of going out and trying to get other ones and, and sort of bring that flavor. So the idea behind this one was to create a bit of a sort of savory umami flavor to it. Um, but not be overly punchy. I do think, mm. you know, for mushroom eaters out there, it's not necessarily a flavour that's going to smack you in the face, especially when it's up against something as robust as Imperial Stout. But mm. what we want to do is sort of pull out that sweetness, dry it out a little bit more, um, give it sort of an earthy, uh, uh, you know, more, mm, I don't want to say dirt, but dirty sort of note to it as well. Um to sort of tie it back. So initially up front, we find that when it's colder, you actually get a little bit more of kind of this uh, off, more uh, unique, uh, earthy note. And then as time goes on, that umami sort of savoury note sort of flips in. Um, also on the nose, like it's a bit more up front when it's cold. And it dissipates quite quickly. So that was one of the things that we learned over it was mushroom heavy on the nose to begin with. But as time will go on as it'll warm up, the imperial stout really starts to take over. This is really good. It's a reference that only people who watch Australian TV will get uh, when they see ad, you know, ads for podcasts, but we can finally say that our podcast has more umami, so that's quite exciting. <laughs> so, we've got Bill on the show. I feel the need to compete for comedic value here now. <laughs> I don't know if we can. I'm a big fan of Bill. This is a, <laughs> I saw the Bill show going forward. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I, I'm thinking about just giving him the log-on rights and he can do the show from now on. Uh, Well, you go, Bill. You're funnier than me. Oh, no, I was just going to say, when I first saw the name of the beer, I thought there was some take on Cocaine Bear. It very much was. Yeah, that's (laughs) good. Because I I just wanted to drink six of them and then just go nuts and eat my neighbour's garbage. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, the the brand brief uh, for it was pretty much a long, recreate this, please. And as um, the other Ben from Carwin put... Uh, in when I sent him the brief and at the first draft image, this is the most outrageous thing you've ever sent me. Um, so, and which is saying a lot because I've sent him some pretty outrageous things. Is it, <laughs> is it one of our normal friends who designed this, or is it yeah, someone is it? else? Uh, it is. It is one of your normal friends. Yes, I and hate to give him credit, but he does do a good job. Normal in inverted commas. <laughs> um, when. Does, I don't even know where to go with this. Uh, so how easy is it to to come up with the branding for something like this? I know, it's like, it, this should be all about the beer because the beer is delicious. And there is this meaty umami <laughs> flavour going on underneath those sweet, uh, more stouty characters. Um, but, yeah, it's who, like, the in terms of the branding, who yep. thought mushroom bear? Who, like, so this one came pretty... This one came pretty easily for us, funnily enough. So the um, the mushroom beer idea was pretty quick once we sort of understood uh, three for what we were trying to do. Um, cocaine bear was pretty much just getting its big push at the time. Um, 
So, I mean, I don't think you could turn TV or social media on without getting blasted by it. So, uh, apropos timing on that one. Um, and then uh, the beer itself, so being our base Imperial Stout, um, that's sort of gone through a bit of a tweak over the past couple of years as we've sort of tried to um, modernise the branding and sort of give it a fresh look. A big part of that has been um, putting on what we call the Stubborn Bear now, um, because we basically just wanted to shoehorn a bear into packaging because we have a lot of bear-related <laughs> jokes within our own brew for some reason, um, as we do. Uh, so it all it, this is probably one of the easiest ones to conceive. Um, and, I, and I don't think it was too hard of a brief for Clint when we basically said, can you, um, can you, make, can you make a label called <laughs> Mushroom Bear based off this poster, please? Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is an evident sort of um, acknowledgement of, of what we're trying to get across. Um. How? What's what's the selling angle you use, intergalactic sales manager for Bright, when you have a <laughs> mushroom beer, and you're trying to put it out there in the world? Uh, or you basically just make an agreement with Ben Carl and then he'll take it all, so you don't have to do the rest. <laughs> this seems to be a theme. Yeah, I was going to say it's not the first time we've heard that answer. <laughs> Um, I really want to check in with Jimmy and Brendan as to, you know, your use of mushrooms, um, you know, in terms of brewing at least. Uh, any questions or answers there that you can give us as to what you, would you would normally attempt a mushroom beer and how do you think this has turned out? We've used shiitake mushrooms in the same, oh. uh, same beer that we put um, fish in. The... Uh, <laughs> Did you use the the, the, the kind of the, the hop torpedo technique or the, the kind of the filtration tea? For that beer, it was a beer brewed for the catfish and it all went into the kettle. Um, yep. I felt both uh, a, a little bit annoyed and a little bit smug when I was cleaning fish out of the, the work pump. <laughs> um, I don't know that we've used mushroom again. I, I do really enjoy mushroom in beer. I think the the Bridge Road beers that I think I've done a few porters and things over the years, and uh, uh, they called the the Kiwi uh, Garage Project have done some some mushroom beers as well that have been um, delicious. Um, we did put mushrooms on the label of our most one of our most recent Nevermore releases, um, being mushroom season um, and umami character we were getting from from malt, but we haven't done a lot else with mushrooms, although. It's definitely on the cards because I think it's a, a great co- contribution to a dark beer, that umami and savoury character that you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, not uh, some I've never brewed with mushrooms before, but the um just the earthy, like mm. it just complements so well in a big beer like this. Um and then it sort of remind like I don't know, it reminds me a little bit of like the earthy notes you get from um like using beetroot or um mm. Even a little bit, you know, it, it just works really well. Well, on that, think, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, you go. I was, was going to say, I think like a lot of the, uh, a lot of the aged oxidized, uh, oxidative characters that you get in barrel aged stouts um, are often quite savoury and umami. Uh, so adding mushrooms into that, I think, is actually a, a very smart move. Um, you know, it sort of it sort of plays on that fact um, that you're already developing those flavours through process. Um, so you're just kind of supplementing that um, with adjunct as well. I think that's really clever. And mm. it strikes me as kind of that forest version of an oyster stout. You know what I mean? It's like the mm. yeah. that, that meatiness as opposed to like that saline similar meatiness. There's, yeah, it just 
rounds it out and kind of balances off those what can sometimes be intensely sweet characters. Um, the same way as I suppose that that a peated uh, that using peated malts um, rounds out and dries out the the palate a little bit. It's yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, really fascinating additive. I think everything's better with glutamate, uh, regardless of what form you add it in, whether it's parmesan or tomato or crystalline mm. powder uh, or mushrooms. Uh, I think it's just a wonderful flavour enhancer for, for anything. And, and particularly for me, I can see serving this as a meal, particularly part of a dinner, like, you know, you could just imagine mm. this being a, a wonderful accompaniment to, to a meal and one of those beers that just changes wine drinkers' perspectives on what a beer can be. Yeah, I think it has a, a, just that little bit extra complexity that you don't get from a, a standard imperial stout and um, especially when you're sort of in that higher alcohol percentage and you're getting that sweetness coming through and um, to sort of, yeah, juxtapose that by putting that umami flavour and getting that meatiness, getting that earthiness. Um, I think this would be something that really matches well. Um, I'll probably want to have a pint of it next to a meal. I think you've got to really balance it out with what it is. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we discovered through it was just the absolute sort of subtlety um, in trying to dose this correctly. Um, this wasn't something that our brew team felt comfortable doing on their own. So thankfully we've got a pretty educated kitchen team um, and chefs that were capable of sort of coming in and pulling out the flavour profiles that we're looking for and um, sort of building upon multiple different mushrooms to get this to where it needed to be. Uh, if, if you were drinking this beer, where would you be drinking it? We've asked the other guys, you know, where the perfect place was. This is probably not one to take all the way to North Carolina. That would confuse them far too much. <laughs> I say that with love to our North Carolina listeners. Shout out to Billy Bob. <laughs> Billy Joe and Bobby Jim. Um, well, I think just given the time of year and the style, um, and especially where we're based, it feels like a pretty appropriate uh, beer for, uh, you know, the snow season. Sort of mm. Sitting up the top of a mountain, snow, fresh snow on the ground, maybe a bit of campfire going on. Um, sort of warm you up with, but I think... You know, this would be a great uh, sit around, enjoy with a few people, um, you know, and enjoy your evening style of beer. And, and I think the, the brand that we are and coming from the place that we do, um, being outdoors is, is a massive part of our, um, our lifestyle and who we are. So I think we'd have to sort of say there, yeah, probably Mount Hotham, Falls Creek, just to uh, spruik the locals. Excellent work. We love it when people spruik the locals and we love the fact that it, it feels in Melbourne like it should be snowing up in the mountains <laughs> at the moment. That's all I can all I can say. Uh, thank you to everyone who's typing in their audience questions. Uh, for those that are listening on the podcast, again, a reminder, come and join us in the Zoom room uh, and you can share, uh, you share your questions and we'll ask them either on your behalf or unmute you. We'll get on with the unmutings in a minute. But Jacob, who's a very loyal cool roomer, has a sleeping baby with him at the moment, so we're not going to disturb the sleeping baby. I'm going to ask his question for him. And Brendan, we might get your answer to the question first, but really would value, you know, Bill, Evan, anyone else, uh, Jimmy, joining him on the answer, um, talking about barrel ageing, particularly of ESBs in this case, um, and how much you think barrel ageing can add to an ESB. Uh, it's a style that we love and that we've had a few of lately. Um, how best do you think it's made and does barrel ageing help? Yeah, I'm a big fan of ESB. We, I think it was really our bread and butter in the early days of Three Ravens. Um, 
I reckon yeah, I've had the North, uh, three Ravens ESB at the the where's the North Melbourne yeah. town the Courthouse Hotel in in North Melbourne. Yeah, just really looking forward to um, getting back in there. Yeah, that'd be awesome. They really have to jazz the place up, um, but they've got the hand pumps again. Um, we have done some tweaks on ESB. We did a Turkish delight um, special bitter, which I thought was really cool. Played off on those floral, um, mm. aromatic, and rose-like characteristics of some of the traditional British hops. Um, with some cacao and things as well. But we, we did an event with um, with Holgate on and off every second year for a while called Cask Off, where it was a, a celebration of, of cask-conditioned beers served directly from the from the cask with firkins. Um, and often people would throw, a, throw tea bags or dry hops or crazy adjuncts in there because it was sort of the obvious way to make a point of difference. But for me, towards the end of that, when we were still involved, my favourite thing was just to cast condition a, a beer, like a lager, or and just get the conditioning right because I, I feel like that's the joy and the beauty of cast conditioning in those styles is the subtlety and the nuance and just celebrating um, a really basic recipe uh, and celebrating it in its purity and in its condition and just getting that condition right and, and letting the, the raw materials do the talking. Um, but yeah, I'm stoked that we brought that beer back. It is, as you say, Jacob, tasting great on nitro, and maybe that is sort of a, a modern spin on those cask beers, is is presenting them in a similar way with with minimal minimal gas, um, but in a slightly more modern modern way. Our our approach now is to use fresh local ingredients. So rather than using Fuggles or Goldings, um, we're using Ella um, as the the flavour and aroma and, and bittering hop, um, which is sort of our our spin on it currently and um, local freshly toasted malts from Voyager. Um, we're so lucky now to have access to those those hops and those malts. Um, yeast is probably one of the most exciting aspects of, of those British style beers is the, the subtle esters and, and character that you get in those. So I don't think for us, we probably wouldn't be um, doing too many um, tweaks or spins on ESB rather than just championing those local ingredients and, and yeast character and, and fresh local hops. How about yourself, Jimmy? How do you feel about sort of barrel aging, I guess, of some of those more simpler styles? Yeah, um, I mean, there's that many, well, there's that many different barrels and finishes and things like that that you can get to that um, some a lot more expensive than others sometimes. But, um, yeah, I think it depends on on the angle that you that you want to play around with it and what, what you want the finished product. And, and at the end of it, you want it to be balanced as well. So... Um, I think there's a lot of different local wineries, distilleries and things like that now that, um, you know, that we're lucky that we do have access to those those barrels that we can play around with, um, you know, some lighter styles um, and let, let them sort of shine after they come out of the barrel, yeah. And how about yourself, Evan? We know the, the brewery up in Bright sort of, you know, experimented with more and more sort of, you know, intricate flavours along the way. How much is the barrel aging process important? Yeah, so our barrel program's been uh, interesting. So we've we had a fair bit sort of pre-COVID coming through, um, and then as a business and a brand, we sort of developed and changed. We probably had a less coming out. Um, currently, now we sort of have one or two a year. And um, probably the benchmark one for us is we have our own imperial stout that gets put into a. Uh, whiskey barrels that house the whiskey that we made Imperial Stout whiskey out of and it comes an infinite loop. Um, so that's become something for us. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk too much at length um, at this, but we do have a bit of a barrel project coming out 
uh, Ben's smiling at me because Ben knows what I'm talking about. Um, You're allowed by us, so, even if you aren't allowed by the team at Bright. Mm. Uh, it's, not, it's not the team at Bright I'm afraid of. I, I don't know if any of you have seen how big Ben Cowan's hands are. I don't want to get messed with. <laughs> oh, can, can I just say that all I'm thinking when, I'm th- when, I, when I hear the phrase mushroom bear, all I'm thinking is like Ben with a you know, lion's mane in his mouth running through Preston. <laughs> More than happy to talk about it. I've, I've told enough people because we started this in what 2019. We did, we did. So, so Ben came with an idea in 2019, and it just took the better part of four years to get it across the line. Um, we are only in, probably the next few months away, um, so we're just kind of coming to the tail end of it now. Um, the Carmen guys approached us we in 2019 to brew up a, a big imperial stout, um, and then the idea was to split that off into as many barrels as we could. Um, and end up having uh, barrel expressions of that style um, across the board. So uh, what we currently have now is uh, six different barrels um, selected between uh, Carwin and Bright. Um, we're going to go through the process of just seeing whether or not everything sort of holds up on its own or some blending needs to be done. Um, but we're probably only a few months away now from releasing that Um I will note that this idea came pre-inflation. So initially, uh, Ben Carwin's idea was let's package six uh, 440ml Imperial Stouts with a custom glass next to each of them. Um, That decision in the 2023 economy has changed (laughs) 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 to maybe suit um, the uh, the, the environment we're in. But, yeah, that'll be the first sort of relaunch into the barrel project for us, but there's a lot more sort of the plans for us. We've, we've actually got a, a fair few barrels in house. Um, it's just been about what we're going to put in them and how we're going to manage them. So, Look, that sounds like a really good spot to actually get Shana to unmute and ask one of her questions. We've got a few questions lined up here in the, in the chat, uh, which are really about barrel ageing. We'd love to have all the brewers and teams sort of answer them. Uh, Shana, feel free to ask your question in whatever direction you would like to. Oh, free reign. Um, That's dangerous. Mm. So we were obviously talking about wine. We're talking about forest floor notes that you get from uh, mushrooms. And that instantly makes me think of a beautiful Pinot Noir. If you were going to, or would you ever, Pinot barrel age a beer? And if so, what sort of style of beer, like a sour or a beer to guard, and then potentially even add more forest floor elements like the mushrooms in it. So essentially the beer tastes like a beautiful Pinot. I feel like this has to be a Brendan question, surely. Yeah, I think that, that's a Brendan question for, yeah, someone who's a brewer who's had real uh, wine, like has strong wine experience. I reckon you've already done it. Like my gut. Yeah, even before my time, Adrian McNulty, who's now the senior brewer um, at uh, Moondog down the road, he he had some Pinot casks and he put originally our dark beer, the the smoke, uh, dark smoke, uh, rout beer style into fresh Pinot casks um, and it went funky and sour and um, he did a double version of that as well. I know James Watt, when he was in Australia from Brewdog, said it was the best Australian beer um, that he'd tasted. Um, I think that was the double ale noir. Uh, really interesting, like not an obvious um, choice of flavours you'd you'd think, like smoke and pinot, but I feel like a lot of Australian pinots do end up with a little bit of that um, retinomyces uh, smoke character anyway, sometimes from bushfires, sometimes from the fruit, sometimes from the soil that it's grown in, um, eucalyptus-y kind of character, sometimes from wild yeast. Um, 
I'd say for, for us, it'd be like a golden sour, something that which would, which would really um, champion and highlight the the stemmy, leafy, aromatic um, characteristics um, without overwhelming it. <clears throat> That's where we'd be going, I'd say. Cedar Guards are great too. Jimmy or Evan, do you have any sort of reflections on using those sort of, oh, I guess, Pinot barrels specifically, but other sorts of wine barrels for, for doing the process? Yeah, I concur with Brendan. Oh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I, definitely along those lines. I mean, Beer de Garde, um, Saison, or um, we used to, De Molin, we had a lot of um, uh, Spanish red barrels that we used to play around with there, mainly um, bigger barley wines. Used to do really, really, really well in those. Um, uh, and then some. Um, that we used to end up putting using Brett uh, after it had been in barrel for 12 months or so, um, taking it out, Brett, um, and then putting it into other barrels for another six months or so. And even that, again, just changes the beer completely, but really, really suits the, um, the, red, the red notes that you get coming through. Let's uh, welcome Justin in. Justin, if we can get you to unmute and... Um... Up from sunny Queensland in Australia, hopefully not snowing up there. Uh, I've got time for a couple of questions from you, mate, so far away. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, yeah, so uh, total newbie to all this brewing business. Uh, certainly plenty of years of sinking beer, but don't know much about the production of it. Um, I was wondering, with all these physicals that are thrown into the brewing process, so, you know, crackers and, and um, um, s'mores and chocolate and all that sort of thing, Obviously, we get something pretty filtered out of the can. What's the actual physical process to take these additives out of the beer so we don't end up with lumpy bits, um, primarily, you know, falling into the glass? Yeah, um, well, I think what Brendan was saying earlier, they got the, um, like the hot rocket style idea where it's, um, you know, you use your adjuncts into a basket. Um, pump it through so as that most of the solids stay in there. Um, we sometimes use like hot socks where we'll put um, them in, uh, like the cacao nibs aren't fun to put direct into a fermenter or run through a heat exchanger or things like that. So, um, you know, things like hop socks. Um, is a hop sock a formal thing or is it more like a footy sock? Like, you know, <laughs> from the – I'm just trying to think of what Gippsland footy side you might borrow a sock off. But, you know, is that just to add a little bit more umami, shall we say? Yeah, uh, especially the yeah the day after the game. Yeah, let them soak really well. <laughs> nah, so, yeah, things like that. And then, um, yeah, cold crashing and maybe a fine filter at the end just to remove any – any bigger chunks that are in there. But, yeah, some things aren't fun to play with. You definitely can end up getting um, in trouble having putting too many things in the fermenter, that's for sure. Okay, so, so you do have, like, a physical, a physical filtration process that you use to remove solid particulates out of the actual beer. It's not just left to either settle on the bottom or float to the top. Yeah, we – well, here we run a um, – it's almost like a milk – filter essentially so it's a sock um i think it's 120 micron so it's not letting basically any sort of hop leaf through or vanilla pod or yeah things like that through to the end final product but um and then you've got your racking arm and your fermenter too so you know most heavy things will settle out at the bottom um and then you can take off 
a little bit higher up in the fermenter. So any solids that are there, that they sort of float down and, and you can come off there. Yep. Cool. Um, similar process to using a, a bag filter, which, yeah, as Jimmy described, it's like a sock, um, just a very, very thin uh, membrane that, that separates the larger particles but lets everything else through. So you, you don't end up with solids, but you, you get all the flavour and, um, yeah, minimal mechanical um, interruption of the, the beer. Are you using a Bullant sock or a mighty Fitzroy Lion sock? Is there a, you know, where, where do you go to for that? We've used felt bags that have been um, a varying uh, success. What are we using at the moment, Bill? I think it's like a, a synthetic. Uh, yeah, I, I think it might. I think it's like a, it's basically felt, but, but yeah, made out of a synthetic fibre. A far more dignified and sensible answer than my question deserved. I thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, you had a second question. Uh, fire yeah. that, my friend, and then we'll be able to film it. Yes, thank you for the second opportunity. Um, there's been a lot of talk, and it's on the tins themselves, about um, bourbon barrels and ageing and that sort of thing in bourbon, and there's been talk of, of smoke and peat and that sort of thing. Just wondering, would, would a, an Isla Scotch, which is known for its peatiness, would that work with beer or... Is there something about scotch that doesn't impart satisfactory flavours the way that bourbon does? Yeah, good call. I think the the, the idea with bourbon is that um, their their first use oak, so can't be can't be sold as bourbon um, if it's been done in in second use oak. So they they make an incredible amount of barrels in the US just for the bourbon industry. Um, they get filled once and then that's it and they get shipped off. Um, so I think the appeal for most breweries is that there's still a lot of other character left in them. Um, and so you're, you're not sort of getting a subdued version of that. Um, and I guess with Scotch, they, they use a, a fair um, mix of different barrels. Um, but I, I think the, Using a peat smoked barrel would probably still work. Um, we did a we did a really big uh, imperial stout with peat malt in it, um, and we did a second fill of that barrel with another imperial stout. And we were doing some tasting, and Brendan handed me a glass, and I just instantly said to him, "Oh, that was the that was the uh, Bapios barrel which had the peat in it previously." So, just having a, a barrel soaked in uh, peated imperial stout still imparted that flavour into the next beer that was in it. So, yeah, I think that that um, I think that could definitely be an interesting contribution there. I think backers have done a number of them um, and Jimmy you've probably come across quite a few of those barrels yourself um, they don't have a lot of oak character so unless you're getting them fresh and still with liquid in them um, it's probably uh, a bit of a false economy like it's hard to get um, a lot of character out of them relative to the price you would be paying for those barrels um, so probably relatively impractical here in Australia as, as much as I'd love to use um, you know some of the Isla barrels uh, for the whiskey that I love it's it's probably just expensive and likely the barrels have dried out or, or don't have a lot of um, spirit left in them. Or, or like the scotches are fetching such a high price that they don't leave the, the they don't leave as much in the barrel. They're not as wet as, as uh, our friends who produce yeah. bourbon. The Starwood barrels that we put a 2.9% beer into and got a 8.6% beer out of. <laughs> <laughs> So is it, is it the bourbon? Is it the bourbon flavour? Tried to do, um, and I have. I can get barrels from Kilhoman whenever I want them. 
but they end up at well over a thousand dollars each by the time they get to Australia, and they're just not worthwhile. Um, the other thing is that sort of oak vanilla character you get in bourbon is from the oak mm. nowhere else. It's been stripped out. You know, any Scotch barrel pretty well is yeah. it's been stripped out of. They're using them four or five times. Yeah, that was what I suppose I was going to ask. Is it is it the oak that we're up that you guys are after, or is it the the sort of residual flavour from the bourbon? But it sounds like it's more like the oak out of the barrel that you're seeking. There's an application. Um, there's there's reasons for both. There's reasons for the the wood or oak character, um, be it Hungarian, French, or American or other. Um, and there's applications for previous use character. Um, even. For us in our wild program, we don't want either. We don't want oak and we don't want previous use. So we're after a neutral French oak barrel that just has the right thickness and the right porosity to allow oxygen in slowly without any other character. There's definitely a, uh, definitely a price point thing there too, like with the bourbons, because they are cycling through them so quickly. They're used once and then they've got to get rid of them. Um, they can be a bit cheaper than finding a scotch um, whiskey barrel that's been used over and over again, they tend to hold hold on to them. Um, mm -hmm. By the time us brewers get barrels like that, they're generally leaky or they're, you know, they're not in, in the best condition. But, um, and that's the great thing now that we're starting to get a lot of these little smaller distilleries and a lot of breweries are putting in their own distilleries and things like that. So is that we do have, starting to get like, um, you know, like the Starwood barrels, the, the Bricks Rum barrels and things like that, that we can start, um, playing around with using those Australian flavours and and, um, and and trying to churn out different things like that rather than looking at the, the European or the, the American X-barrels. Um, Mark, who is one of another cool rumour, who has uh, asked a question about barrels, I'm going to steal his question and twist it a little bit. Um, with something that you're looking for a distinct uh, bourbon flavour with, how much is it the? How much is it about availability and how much it, uh, that particular barrel costs, as opposed to kind of the the I suppose the desire to get it. So so it's it's yeah it, like if you're looking for something specific, um, does the cost normally just blow it out of out of um, possibility? Uh, any of our brewers? Increasingly so, I'd say now, like in the current climate, it's um, hard, hard to justify the, the upfront cost of, of buying premium barrels um, to sit on that stock for, you know, 12, 18 months before it's even packaged um, to then sell it. Uh, if you've got a market for those, um, those premium barrel finishes, then you might, might be able to justify it. Um, I know there's at least a couple of breweries that are still investing quite heavily in in really premium uh, bourbon barrels, um, and yeah, lucky, good on them for, for having that um, the cash flow to, to be able to support that. Um, but it's pretty pretty challenging here uh, in Australia to to put that money away for yeah for two years. And like to put it into perspective, like I was over at um, uh, Bottle Logic uh, late last year, and like they've got a warehouse just for their barrels. Um, told him what we're paying for our barrels here, and, and like they, they're nearly getting their barrels for free. You know, fifty bucks <laughs> for a, for an ex rum or ex bourbon barrel is what they're paying versus, you know, we're paying upwards wow. of 
four or five hundred dollars a barrel here. So, um, you know, there's a big, big price difference in um, what they can get because they're there, they're fresh. Um, and I think that then comes back to, you know, us being able to start using a lot more Australian and, and things like that. But, you you know, a bourbon barrel, you're always you're always going to get that bourbon flavour that you want because of the how fresh they are, you know, the vanilla and the sweetness that you get from from that, um, you just can't compare. But yeah, there's a lot of other versatile barrels out there, but it's um, yeah, justifying the cost is always a big one. Um, and we're sort of lucky because we can do a little bit smaller batches, um, can blend back. You know, we've still got barrels of, of some other beers that we're, we're hanging on to just because we will use it later on to blend back with something else and we can refill the barrels and use them again where yeah, you have a look at those American breweries, they were, yeah, bottle logic, they wouldn't use a barrel twice. It was get it in, fill it, once it's done, yeah, back out. Wow. So. Recoopering oh. barrels, I guess, one way that you can extend the life mm-hmm. of barrels if, if you've got a cooper, um, that you can get the barrels to and from without um, without blowing the budget. Shaving the barrel back if it's so long as the wood's sticking up and refiring it might be a good way to extend the life of a barrel, although bourbon barrels in particular are, are about as thin as um, they can make them without them falling apart. So there's not a lot of um, recoupering that can be done to bourbon barrels, but you could get American oak wine barrels and turn them into a, something something resembling a bourbon barrel. Which which kind of begs the question, this is the, the wine side of me asking, is there a market just to use brand new barrels? Like I know like in the wine industry, um, like a French, a brand new French oak barrel, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, but $400 would find you something pretty, pretty amazing. Um, well, not amazing, but pretty, pretty okay. good. Is that, yeah. I just, bought four, I just bought four new French oak punchins for this vintage. Yeah. That was 13,000 euros delivered. There you go. Like, that's, <laughs> well, so inflation is real, kids. Yeah, well, that's the... Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> That's a, that's quite a lot more than four hundred. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a lot more than four hundred. <laughs> I, I haven't seen a barrel. I haven't seen a barrel for four hundred for at least twenty years. What? Yeah. No yeah. way. Well, you speak to Warren Wu. Yeah, uh, Warren, there's a few people in the courtroom yep. who are competing to be barrel brokers. Warren can do you a barrel for four hundred a barrel. <laughs> Shana and Muggs, they're looking at even cheaper than that. It's amazing the deals you can get on a <laughs> barrel here in the courtroom. I'm going to throw the last of our audience questions. Gilbert, you've been waiting very patiently. The sky is blue above you, wherever you are sitting there, my friend. Whereabouts are you? And please ask your question. Oh, yeah, I'm in Sydney, guys. Uh, it's been a beautiful day, but um sun's getting a bit lower and the wind's getting up. You can't see my hair blowing, obviously. <laughs> um, I, I feel like we moved past mushrooms a bit, but I wanted to just... <laughs> no, I had a let's go back to the mushrooms. Back to the mushrooms. Um, yeah, just wondering if uh, if you guys are thinking when you're brewing with them about what varieties you use. Is it are you going to local product or are you just buying them at the supermarket? Does it matter? Do you are you worried about the different characters, the different mushroom varieties in part? Um, yeah, that's yeah. pretty much the crux. So for the mushroom bear, um, this, as I said before, was um, was devised with our um, head chef and our kitchen staff at the brewery. Um, so over the course of about a week, uh, trialed a bunch of different tinctures, um, predominantly this beer itself actually, um, uses oyster mushrooms, which are locally harvested near us, um, in the Evans Valley. Um, 
but as well as that, um, you know, there's a little bit of pine mushroom, portobello, shiitake, which we would have gotten from our, um, our food suppliers as well. So um, that was about, I guess, for this beer in particular, and, and maybe Brendan and, and, and Jimmy, if they sort of devise their own recipes um, and speak to it. But for this one, uh, our brew team had some flavour notes they wanted to come through. They worked with uh, the team to get them um yeah, sort of coming through by, by mixing together a bunch of different ones. So, um, you know, as it's with any ingredient um, and, and cooking with mushrooms, you're going to get different flavours, you're going to get different sort of intensity levels. Um, and for what we wanted here, that was the blend that we came to. It was just fortunate that we were able to use, yeah, mushrooms that were locally grown and harvested. So, Awesome. Yeah, that's – so if you brewed another one, would you try a different mix or would you consult the kitchen team again? <laughs> Um, I, think, I was interested with the the comparison to the oyster stout as well, like to get that umami. That that was another thought that I had that I was going to ask about. I think if for us, if we were to do it again, it would come down to the question of whether or not we're looking for um, balance and uh, you know having that sort of mushroom flavour just be an element of what we're doing, or whether we're looking for just pure mushroom. Um, as it's like with anything with craft beer, it's sort of the intensity levels to which you're sort of going to go to. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it'll all come down to the style that we would be brewing with and, and the flavour profile that we're going to get, whether we're looking for balance or whether we want you to feel like you're uh, just drinking liquefied mushroom juice, I'm not too sure. That sounds delicious. <laughs> um, so that's definitely one that I'd look at, at working with, particularly the ease of access, um, the proliferation of... of pines that grow around Victoria and the, any of the pine plantations or near pine. Um, Grey ghosts um, are a mushroom that I love the flavour of. They're, they're pretty hard to come by, um, so it would probably be quite expensive, but I think that's one I'd love to play with. Um, and the slippery jack, um, largely because I don't like eating it, um, but I love the flavour. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, mushroom that has such an intense and, and delicious flavour. Um, but borders on um, the texture of snot, depending on how you cook it. So I think putting that in beer is probably one of the best applications of Slippery Jacks. And they are, they're prolific. They grow in abundance towards the end of mushroom season in Victoria. So they'd be pretty pretty easy to get a hold of in a, in a large quantity. And, and we do like making snotty beer. <laughs> um, Thanks. On that note, we're going to call it an afternoon and I'm going to say thank you, Jimmy, for the Goodland S'mores Campfire Stout. It's an amazing, amazing and delicious beer. Uh, Jimmy and Bill, thanks for joining us once again. And, and James Bean is is terrific. Uh, and, that, and, the, and the discussion around barley wine is one that I think... Um, We'll continue on the podcast for a long, long time. And, of course, Evan, thanks for joining us again. Uh, Mushroom beer, who would have guessed? (laughs) Um, It's been a lot of fun. And also, thank you, Ben Cowan, um, for for being the vehicle to put this all together. It's been – it's really been fantastic. Uh, we will call it a night. Look up all those breweries um, if you're listening to the podcast and get your hands on – uh, this beer and all their other beers, which are terrific as well. Um, thank you very much, everyone. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for joining us.